Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today, and uh, thank you for taking time to be with us. The FCC has issued a huge document, and huge is probably an understatement, that spells out reform of the Universal Service Fund in their effort to take this fund that was designed uh, to get telephone service into unserved communities and transform it to increase broadband deployment. And though the goals are commendable, uh, there are plenty of questions and criticisms. And here today to help us understand a little bit more about what reform is all about, answer some of those questions and explore other uh, issues uh, related to the reform uh, uh, order, uh, is Cassandra Haynes. And Cassandra caught my attention on Twitter and then on her blog with some of her commentary about the reform process and its uh, potential impact. And uh, then <clears throat> I thought she was going to take the uh, whole Thanksgiving weekend to plow through this whole 750-page document. I figured she should have an opportunity to give us some of the scoop on what's going on with this. So, Cassandra, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries. No worries. So is it um, is it true that you're the only person in Washington outside of the FCC who's read this order? Um, that's what I hear. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't made it through to page 759. That's probably going to take me another couple of weeks, but I've, I've made it pretty far. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a lot of people are, I'm sure, working very hard on getting to that point. Mm-hmm. So in general terms, uh, can you give the listeners a brief description of the, uh, the main things this FCC order addresses related to broadband deployment? Well, this FCC order is definitely monumental and it's comprehensive. Um, On the highest level, it really addresses two things. The first is the system of federal subsidies for deploying high-cost telecom service, which is the Universal Service Fund, and then also the intercarrier compensation system, which is basically the exchange of payments between carriers for terminating access. And underneath these kind of two overall umbrellas, basically every single aspect of the telecom network as we know it is being impacted somehow either directly or indirectly. Okay. So I mean we're today we're going to focus heavily on the uh high cost fund cuz the intercarrier compensation mm-hmm. beast is probably requires another show or three of its own. Yes, and it will bore people into death. <laughs> <laughs> so, um relative to getting money to people who hopefully will build out um broadband services what has changed between the Universal Service Fund and the Connect America Fund? Well, the main thing that has changed is that the Universal Service high-cost fund money was previously used for telephone service, but the companies who received it could also deploy infrastructure capable of delivering broadband, which is why you see such a high rate of broadband deployment in the rural telecom service areas. Now, the Connect America Fund will mostly be used for broadband, but the carriers to receive it will also be required to provide voice. And then the other significant change is that now there's a special fund just for mobility and another special fund just for extremely high-cost areas. Okay. So to the average person on the street, what does that mean exactly? Well, if the average person on the street happens to live in an area that has no broadband right now, then Uh hopefully it means that they will get broadband hopefully within the next year to two years, um, the FCC definitely wants these areas to be the first, you know, first in line for funding and to make sure that any money that's 
um, put out there definitely doesn't go to areas that already have broadband. Okay. So now you and I have talked about uh, the various things that a number of entities and associations were jockeying for in the debate running up to the reform order coming out. And you just sort of described it as a scene in which everybody seemed intent on making sure the other group didn't get a piece of the pie. So now is that still how you view this reform as as this process in which an array of groups are just sitting around looking at what everyone else is uh, getting from the reform or will the griping stop do you think and we'll start to to move on uh addressing issues in people's respective backyards? Well, um, basically right now I think everyone's still trying to digest everything um, before they sort of point fingers at other industry groups. But, you know, once the details started to emerge on this, the industry pretty much realized that the FCC pulled a bait and switch on the telecom industry. They demanded this consensus framework from the rural and incumbent price cap carriers who just killed themselves this past year working on coming up with this framework, which arguably wasn't perfect, but it's what the FCC asked for. And then once the order was released, it really contained very little of this plan. And in particular, the rural association's plan has kind of been relegated to this you know, upcoming rulemaking proceeding, and the future of that is pretty uncertain. Um, you know, going beyond that, the cable industry is pretty unhappy. Um, there's different factions within the rural industry. The price cap carriers might feel burned about some of the things that they did not get. Um, so, yeah, the griping's probably going to continue, I'd say, for another six months or to a year until the dust settles and the industry can more clearly see how the rules are going to impact their individual groups. Whoa. <laughs> this um this sounds interesting. Now, let's come back to the to the bait and switch part. Now how would you define that? I mean, in other words, I know that there were a lot of articles that came out you know, leading up to this where the associations for rural telecom companies, you know, they had their position and they were strongly adamant about A and B and, and so forth, but where where did you see the, the, the bait and switch part? Well, basically, the FCC, like I said, they asked and more or less demanded that the telecom companies rule and the price caps work together to come up with this plan. And while they were doing that, the FCC is writing the rules themselves and drawing more from the National Broadband Plan and their original NPRM that came out in February. And then once the industry reaches a consensus that happened in the end of July. Well, the rules came out in October. There was very little time in between for anyone to really analyze the impact of what the consensus framework would be. There was a whole huge last-minute rush of arguments and bickering and and sort of these last-minute partial plans that came out that may be good for certain parties but not for everyone. Meanwhile, I believe anyway that the rules association plan was comprehensive. It addressed every aspect of reform, and it was fair. Um, but, you know, like I said, the FCC is now, I guess, you know, pushing a lot of those issues back for the rural companies to address later on um, at the beginning of next year in another comment cycle, and then there will be another rulemaking. So it's like, did we really get anything that we wanted from the consensus framework? I don't know. It's, it remains to be seen. Well, do you have one or two examples of – Say, for example, the two top things that the rural organizations wanted that isn't in the current uh, order. 
Well, um, I would say maybe the rate of return rate of 11.25%, that's going to be addressed later on. And it seems like the FCC is wanting to reduce that or, you know, move it towards being eliminated in the long term. Um, you know, the rural associations were, I believe they were willing to kind of settle for a reduced rate, but now this issue is is being put off. And then I think the other big issue was with intercarrier compensation, and I know we said we're not going to dive too deeply into that, but the rural associations didn't want to be put on a bill and keep methodology, which is very difficult to explain, but um, they will be eventually. It'll just be a longer transition period of, I think, nine years. So let's come back to the, to the 11% item. Is that basically how much they they get as a compensation for having built infrastructure and what they're getting now is less than what they had wanted in terms of, like, for example, if they spent $1,000, would they get 11% of that back? Um, well, it actually, um, you know, it's the authorized rate of return for, you know, rate of return utilities. And interestingly, you know, the the rate they could get up to is 11.25%, but interestingly, a lot of them don't get that, and some even don't get any of that at all. But that's kind of the up-to limit. Okay. So if they were going to do a broadband project, uh, for example, what would be the effect of, versus, of what they wanted versus what they got? or appear to have gotten in this order? Um, that really remains to be seen and will be kind of on a company-by-company company basis. One example I can kind of think of off the top of my head is if a company recently deployed broadband, they may have qualified for something called the safety net additive support. Mm -hmm. That's going to be eliminated in a fairly fast time frame. Um, so they may, you know, it's kind of a special, you know, you invest a lot of money you're going to get, you know, a little extra recovery. So that might be going away, which, you know, will quickly will 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 be going away quickly. So that might cause some uncertainties for these particular companies. Um, you know, if they were planning on a deployment, they can, no, there's nobody could qualify for safety net support anymore. So that could, I guess, deter some investments. Hopefully it won't, but it's it's possible. Like I said, it it comes down to a company by company basis. And what I've, you know, become be, becoming to realize in this is that I don't really think there's any, I guess, broad statement that you can say about these reforms where every single, especially the small companies, are going to agree with because some of them are going to be hit real hard and some of them might not be hit so hard. Okay. Um, in terms of projects coming to fruition, is then the net of it, from your perspective, <clears throat> that people will be less inclined to build out broadband projects, will they maintain, you know, say, for example, telecom companies just maintain their their phone service and that's it and they won't upgrade? I mean, again, where would we see this impact at the... At well, the I don't... Um, I certainly hope that they won't be inclined to pull back on um, investments. I know just the regulatory uncertainty itself that's been, you know, plaguing us for the past couple of years has made some companies hesitant to invest because they're like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. So hopefully just the fact that now we have a little tiny bit more regulatory certainty and the company's lawyers and consultants and, and, and such are, you know, working hard to do economic models and everything that, you know, I don't know much about, but, you know, hopefully they can come up with some 
deployment plans that make sense for the company and will ultimately be quite beneficial to consumers. And then, like I said before, like the FCC is very intent on getting broadband into the areas that have no broadband today. They don't care as much about the areas that already have broadband, which is unfortunate from an investment recovery perspective. But, you know, from a consumer perspective, I'd say these things are relatively good, assuming that they work how they're intended to work. Mm -hmm. Now, I saw in one of your tweets that you um – uh, <clears throat> were favorably impressed by a Calix uh, blog post that the bottom line of it was companies now need to very quickly reassess their business strategies. So oh, yes, definitely. Mm, absolutely. How, how so? In which ways? Um, they need to assess what their planned deployments are, and I think that if they had planned on maybe overlaying broadband into areas that already have broadband, I think they need to rethink that and focus on getting it into areas that don't have broadband first and foremost. Um, I think that would be a, a wise strategy. Um, you know, I think they need to think about their cost structures and think about ways that they can cut costs without cutting quality. Um, the FCC is proposing this quite troubling methodology of, um, regression analysis to determine how much um, CAF support goes to similarly situated rural car carriers. And this gets a little, you know, dicey with the details, but basically it, it might kind of create a race to the middle um, because the ones with the highest cost relative to their similarly situated characters are going to see their funding clipped at the 90th percentile, prospectively. So, you know, that's something to think about. Um, the details on that are going to be forthcoming. Um, and then I would also recommend um, thinking about diversifying into other areas of the telecommunications business, cloud computing, data center, some of these kind of popular things, um, video services, wireless. Um, if they haven't done that already, I mean, if there's um, opportunities for new streams of revenue and opportunities to provide benefits to customers in a local area, um, go for it. Then should should we be looking at um, maybe some companies de-emphasizing the infrastructure side of the business and just focusing on services as a from you know as a business strategy? Um, meaning, like they wouldn't kind of focus on upgrading infrastructure. Right. I mean, when when there are discussions about, particularly about community broadband networks, one of the issues that comes up is that the physical infrastructure is a bear. That's where a lot of the cost mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. actually deploying broadband. On the other side are the services that run over the network. From a consumer perspective, you know, yes, they care about the infrastructure, but they're buying the service. I mean, that that's really mm -hmm. what, what matters to them. But if you're a business person looking at this, you know, you might be inclined to say, well, why don't we find somebody else to build infrastructure and we're going to just basically focus on service. And if that were the case, would the 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 Connect America fund even play a role in their, you know, their financial projections? Um I think that brings up some interesting points and I have there are companies out there that are focusing more on services and not infrastructure. Um off the top of my head I can't remember the name of the company but I did read something about it recently where it's kind of like you don't even need the infrastructure anymore because it's sort of already there but then again you have to have the infrastructure. You know they're they're so tied together. Um you know I, I think 
maybe I'm not answering this well, but, um, you know, I, I think the infrastructure has to be there for the future, basically. Right. We, we can't ignore the infrastructure, but in that, you know, one of the things that, I've, that I thought about a year or so ago is that how a lot of um, telecom companies view their world in the smaller regional space is that they've always provided a telephone service. They've, they've basically provided a, a pipe to allow mm-hmm. people to talk from one person to the other. And now the digital age has turned that whole thing on its head because instead of requiring you know boxes, PBX boxes and, and all of that, everything is digital. So it becomes an IP play. Well, if that's the case, then you need. Then my thinking was, well, then telecom companies need to rethink the business they're in. Now, if yes, today yes, we have okay, so today we have a lot of telecom companies who are dependent on USF. Now we're changing this and threatening to take it away in some cases, or alter it, or even just making the process of qualifying for it difficult. To me, I would again say, well, maybe this is a time to rethink the business I'm in as a traditional rural telecom company and come at this from a different perspective and maybe, again, de-emphasize the whole CAF drill. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with you um, on a lot of those points. I think that, well, voice is is becoming an application, um, not a service. So, you know, the Connect America Fund requires recipients to provide broadband and voice capability, which could mean voice over IP as long as it meets certain, like, latency requirements and, you know, E911 requirements. So when you think about it as – when you think about voice and broadband as being, you know, bundled together and voice not even really being necessary, like, I mean, I, you know, I, I actually just – got a landline phone yesterday for the first time in seven years because I, I had to do this show. I didn't want to do it on my cell phone. So I, you know, and people use their cell phones for wireless and, and broadband too. So there's just so much skipping back and forth over the traditional boundaries anymore that any tel- any small telco or anyone in the in this industry that wants to provide service has to kind of look at this this huge spectrum of services and pick which ones are best for their community and which ones are going to be, you know, revenue builders. Mhm. Now, by the way, did the FCC order make any distinction between ISPs and telecom companies? Because at, at a certain level, they're they're very different beasts, even though they're starting to merge and overlap, you know, in terms of what they provide. Yeah, you know, I was looking for that in the order, and from everything that I can tell, it's basically in order to receive Connect America fund money, you have to, like I said, you have to provide voice capability, which means it can be voice over IP, so that means that pure ISPs are in play here. Um, it has to be subject to certain latency requirements and provide emergency, serv- you know, access to emergency services. And then the broadband has to be four megabits per second down, one megabits per second up, and then has other little, you know, kind of obligations in, in terms of capacities and latency too. So I, I suppose if you are either a telco or an ISP and you meet all these sort of this checklist of qualifications, then the FCC is not going to distinguish between whether or not you're an ISP or a telecom company. But I think that's more of a legal question, probably better answered by the lawyers. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, are you okay with using your, your family business as a as a showcase here for a couple of minutes? Um, Yeah, sure. Okay. So <clears throat> your family's owned a 
rural telecom company in Iowa for 100 years, did you say? So yes, nearly uh, like 90, 98 years, almost 100 years. Hopefully we'll make it to that. Okay. So how have you how has USF impacted your business or how you do business and with the new order how do you see that changing well it's definitely allowed the company to build you know they they're they've been starting a fiber to the home expansion and it it certainly allowed them to do that we were very early in the DSL game back in the 90s so USF back then was just for telephone service but like i said at the beginning it allowed these small companies to upgrade their switches and upgrade their lines and and make these investments that they probably couldn't make otherwise because of the economies of scale and the population density just you know there's no business case in an area that has one person per square mile to provide fiber to the home or or DSL. So, you know, definitely, you know, the the comp- the my family's company does not solely rely on universal service by any means, but you know, it has certainly helped enable them to kind of be an early ad- adopter in terms of, you know, technology that people want and people what people need. Mhm. So, how are they viewing these changes? And I mean, it it sounds like it's a a peripheral peripheral part of their landscape but you know definitely it has had a factor will it continue to have a factor in the new world order do you think yeah well you know like i said the small companies are you know working with their consultants and lawyers right now to figure out you know precise models and and you know cost structures for the you know coming year and longer so right now it's really uncertain as to what that specific financial impact, like, you know, in a, in a dollar's amount, how much less we're going to get in USF. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are things that I, I would imagine a lot of rural telecom companies are really just, you know, anxiously waiting to get those numbers in and then, you know, go from there. So it, it's certainly a scary time. Right. Okay. I can see where that might be a factor. Um well, the wireless ISPs, not to be confused with the national cellular companies like AT&T mm-hmm. and Verizon, but the WISP, will they benefit in any um, major way from the order that improves their ability to do service or will it have a negative effect on them? I certainly think that they have a great opportunity because they, the FCC is going to raise $100 million per year for a remote areas fund, which they will be – eligible to receive, um, they will be eligible to receive that with satellite companies. So I think that they may be a little bit angry about that because they see themselves, and I see them too, as much superior to satellite. But when it comes to remote areas, I think the FCC just kind of wants to get the broadband there. They don't care how it's done. Um, so, I mean, I think I think it's great that the FCC is is putting out this extra $100 million just for remote areas. I think it's a wonderful opportunity and I, I hope to see them take advantage of it because they are they have a valuable role in the overall market and you know they provide local service and they're usually small businesses from, you know, community members. So mm-hmm. So I have a I have a question from one of the uh audience members here actually in the chat room, which is um what will happen to LECs when unsubsidized broadband providers such as WISP uh, show up in the same area and cause their CAF money flows to stop? That's a good question, and that's definitely something that um, the the rural companies, the rule hasn't been nailed down yet on that, but the FCC is sort of toying with the fact that 
um, if an unsubsidized competitor is covers a hundred percent of the geographic area that you know the other company is wanting the money for, they're not going to be able to get it. But the FCC might change that and lower that limit to seventy percent or fifty percent or something. So that could be a real challenge down the road for some of the small companies if if there's an un, if there's a strong unsubsidized competitor. But you know that really goes back to what. The FCC's main goal in this is is to get the broadband into areas that have no broadband. They they see no point in in giving anything extra to companies where there's more than one in an area. Right. Okay. Um, it's, and I, I read a um, uh, Wispa. That's the the Wireless ISP mm-hmm. Association uh, had a press release a couple of weeks ago that said um, the the CAF the California uh, the <laughs> California <laughs> the Connect America Fund. <laughs> Will lead to government-funded competition against WISP. Um, is that a fair <clears throat> assumption? Um, I think they believe it's a fair assumption. I don't know if I think it's a fair assumption because I think this hundred million dollars is just, like I said, I think it's just terrific for them. That's a lot of money. Um, the WISPs have traditionally operated without any universal service subsidies, which they're very proud of. Um, but then now that they're getting this access to up to $100 million a year, I don't really kind of see why they say that's unfair. Um, but I do cons- I, I do see how they can say things are unfair in reference to, like, the price cap companies um, and, and how their cap is structured because they're getting this sort of bonus one-time $300 million right away. And in a way, you know, on one hand, it's like, there's 18 million unserved customer, unserved broadband customers. 83% of them are in price cap territory. Why are we rewarding the price cap companies with $300 million? I have no idea. Well, it's because the FCC wants to get broadband into unserved areas, and these unserved areas are in price cap territory. So you give the money to them and hope they do it. There's going to be strict penalties if the companies don't do it. When you, once you read the order, you kind of start to realize, like, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a windfall for the price cap companies, but it's not going to be easy for them either. I mean, they have to do it. And if not, they're going to have to give the money back. And then if they don't do it at all, then companies like WISPs will have an opportunity to get that money. So. So now what's a price cap company? Um, the price cap companies are op- operate under price cap regulation, and they're basically your AT&T, your Verizon, your Windstream, the, ba- the big companies. Aha. Uh-huh. And so therein, I guess, lies the rub. I mean... Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of it is, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a strong advocate for small businesses. I don't want to see AT&T of all companies getting, you know, several hundred million dollars. Like, you know, that that's I, I've strongly advocated ever well, you know, the merger is in shambles right now, obviously, but you know, as soon as the merger was announced, I mean I was very quick to say like AT and T should be barred from getting any universal service subsidies if this merger is approved. It should be a specific merger condition that they get no universal service subsidies. So, you know, that obviously is, you know, probably not going to be an issue now, but, um, you know, the FCC did say that anyone, you know, any of the price cap companies who receive the CAF money, A, cannot use it for merger conditions, and B, cannot use it for previously planned investments. Like if right now, you know, the rules become effective on December 29th, so right now if Verizon has a business plan that says we're going to build um, Fios or DSL into such and such unserved area, that won't qualify but, you know, after December 29th. So it kind of makes me wonder, you know, if some companies have maybe specifically held off on announcing deployment plans, 
you know, in light of this. But if the broadband is going to get deployed, that's good. So. So the two things that jump out at me are one, um, while a hundred million dollars is a significant amount of money for me, because if I had that much money, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, however, <laughs> however, in the context of four. $4.5 billion, billion. Mm-hmm. a year, that's <clears throat> not a whole lot of money. That's true. It's a drop in the bucket. Um, but when you think about the cost structure of the WISPs and the satellite providers, they're very slim and lean with their costs. So $100 million per year, too, you have to figure it's per year, can go to cover a lot of, of you know, a lot of people with, with these services. Wow. But then that comes to the other part of the thing that jumps out at me, which is, of that two point or four billion dollars spent currently, AT and T and Verizon get over two billion of that, mm-hmm. and so yeah. we basically are, yes, WISP run on thin margins and do very well, but we seem to be rewarding companies that haven't produced a whole lot. I mean, if you look at the fact that We've been giving AT&T and Verizon like over two billion dollars a year out of the USF, uh, the USF, for some number of years now. When you look at the fact that every one of them browbeats various state governments to get additional subsidies, there has been a lot given to these particular companies. And what is it that the American public has to show for it? So, in that vein, why should we continue to give them money? I think that's um, definitely one of the $4.5 billion questions, so to speak. Um, that goes back to what I was saying with the fact that, in a way, it's a little bit sadistic almost to see that the FCC is kind of just rewarding them first with this CAF Phase 1, $300 million, and then in addition to that, $200 or, you know, $2 billion per year, and they're being rewarded for not doing anything. Like, you know... The Arleks are getting about the same amount of money, but these little companies have just been busting their butts for the last 10 or 15 years to deploy internet service in extremely high cost areas. So, should, you know, should their funding be cut because some of them are inefficient? That's been one of the big issues of controversy throughout the whole proceeding. There's a few companies, a few small companies that operate just with enormous costs, and they kind of make everyone else look bad. Well, Verizon and AT&T and and the other price cap companies have left 83% of their unserved areas without broadband for this, you know, long amount of time. When you think about it, you know, it's almost 2012. Can you imagine living without broadband? There's 18 million people who don't have broadband, and 83% of them are in price cap company areas. So I can see why, basically, you know, I can see why a lot of people are really sore about the issue that the that they're getting almost half of this money. I, I can definitely see that. I don't know what can be done about it. You know, this is what the FCC has decided. Oh, that's going to be my next question, which is, you know, whither goest we now? I mean, what do we do to address what is a fairly blatant, in my humble opinion, um, uh, unfairness? Um, you know, there's the courts. That's an option. If anyone is willing to go that route, you know, more power to you. Um, by all means, give it a shot. Um, uh, you know, other than that, I think it just really comes down to we just have to make the best with what we've been given. And any opportunities there are to course correct along the way, 
by all means, do it. Mm-hmm. So now, has the reform order done anything at all to either entice or facilitate um, creative partnerships between ISPs, telcos, uh, and 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 the communities, local businesses, and anchor institutions within these various uh, communities? Well, it sounds like the FCC is expecting anchor institutions to have kind of a priority status with in terms of like the quality of service and the speeds, um, especially if it you know if it's an unserved area. I think the FCC is expecting CAF recipients to get to that anchor institution first. In terms of like local businesses and beyond that, I haven't seen anything in the order that specifically you know there's certainly no mandates that companies be required to you know partner with anyone. Um, I think it comes down to an individual community basis in terms of, you know, what the the community needs, what the company needs. One thing that I've been, you know, really hot about for the last year is partnerships with the local municipal or cooperative utility company to deploy smart grid services. Because otherwise, you're going to have rural utilities, municipal or cooperative, and rural broadband providers, cooperative, independent, municipal, whatever, who are building two separate broadband networks, and it's just absolutely wasteful. So it's just as a matter of the parties need to sit down and negotiate and, and figure out a, a creative partnership. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, there's nothing in the order about that. But I think any right. opportunity, any opportunities that exist in communities that will, number one, help benefit the small communities, obviously, and number two, be profitable for the companies is something to look at. I, I wouldn't discount anything. Um you know, especially with these uncertainties, especially with revenue uncertainties. Um, yeah, so anything that's there, I would look at. Are the um, are community broadband networks addressed in this order uh, in any way? And if they are, what kind of roles been defined for them? You know, I really, I I'm not really all that in the know with community networks, and I have not seen anything specifically in the order that mentions them. But to me, it sounds like pretty much anyone's going to be able to participate in the reverse auctions in the phase two of the Connect America fund. So if the community networks want to try to participate in that, then I would say they should definitely start looking at those options once the auction method- methodology is more clear. Right. And, and in a conversation I had actually with a <clears throat> FCC staff person, one of the things that was brought up is that um, community networks can participate, but they have to go through whatever state dance they have to go through to be identified or designated as a telco. Yeah, they they would have to be designated as an ETC, um, which means they would have to meet these kind of checklist qualifications of voice capability and broadband at you know such and such speeds, whatever. So they they would have to do that at the state level. Mm-hmm. Is there any recommendations you would give to um, communities that want to somehow uh, take advantage of this whole fund and funding process? I mean, would you advocate that they, you know, lobby, that they um, a petition? I mean, what 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 kind of options? Because it sounds like, um, for the most part, no one. I shouldn't say no one. Um, one of my regular frequent criticisms about the whole Washington process is that I feel it fails to take into account the actual end-user, consumer, 
and it doesn't give them an adequate voice in the process. And so far, I haven't seen anything that changes my mind in that position. Um, well, I would say one option is to work with the state regulators because the FCC, you know, that that's another dicey, controversial topic is the role of state regulators, um, which I really probably couldn't speak to all the nuances on that very well. But the FCC is, you know, saying that the state regulators are going to be like the front lines for consumer concerns. Um, the FCC, I don't think, you know, well, actually, you know, in the consensus framework developed by large ILECs and the and the rural associations, large ILECs really wanted to just get rid of the state regulators altogether. And they are going to be preempted on some on some areas. But can you imagine if the FCC became the front lines between consumers and the telephone companies? I mean, that would just be a nightmare. You know, like the, they would be so overwhelmed with, you know, not to poke fun, but, you know, grandmothers calling in and, and complaining about, you know whatever they whatever it is they complain about with their telephone service. I, I know that these things happen a lot. Like you know, I, like I said, I'm, this is my family business, and I I did work for my family's business when I was in high school, and we got odd complaints from all kinds of people. Um, right. You know, imagine you know, and if the company can't if if they call the company and the company doesn't satisfy their complaints in the right way, then they take it to the maybe the, the town council or maybe the state regulator. But if those complaints had to go directly to the FCC, it would just be a ridiculous waste of resources, of the FCC's well, yeah, resources. Yeah, I, I agree with yeah. that. I don't necessarily think that the FCC needs to be the interface. My contention is that as they come up with these rules and orders and so forth, they don't put any kind of mechanism in place for the communities to have some sort of voice, some sort of leverage, not with the FCC, but within the state. I mean, you talked about the state regulators, mm -hmm. and yes, this yeah, I, I think that that they just the FCC kind of just says let's let the states deal with that. I mean, that's I, I think when it comes down to that, yeah, I mean, I I agree. Sometimes the FCC maybe blows over some of these more consumer issues a little bit. Um, you know, again, this may be a better question for someone with a little more legal knowledge on, on these kinds of things. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think some states, anyway, I think the state regulators are, are really the way to go in, in terms of in terms of a community trying to communicate its specific needs if they're not being met by the broadband provider that's there. So as I look at the state regulators, what was the what was their role before and now after this order? Well, they do, um, you know, they designate carriers that are eligible to re receive funding. Um, they also do a whole lot of stuff with the intercarrier compensation. That role is the one that's going to be reduced a lot. So I haven't really gotten to a lot of the state stuff in the order yet, so I'm not sure if I can speak too well on that issue. Right, okay. Um, it does present some interesting, uh, oh, some interesting issues to be... Uh, to be a result, you know, when I was when I've written about and talked about this whole reform thing, and the the the, the whole travesty of large companies getting so much of this money, is I felt that the money should have been because it is all taxpayer dollars. I mean, this mm -hmm. is like really my my foundation pet peeve. Is it's, it's like from everyone, and that money should just basically be just sent back to <clears throat> the communities, whether it's at a regional level or a state level or something. It says, you know, let the people who own the problem, who have paid into this fund, come up with the best solutions for how to address their broadband needs. 
and then mm-hmm. that would have been now I realize that you know in Washington they probably wouldn't even bother <laughs> to chuckle about an idea like that. Right. Well, I I know you and I have discussed this before too, and, and I I don't really agree with you on on that issue because I I don't really see how you can get. You know, I, I just see so many. I, when I think of communities trying to figure out what's best for them, I get this image in my head of like a town hall meeting with different community members, colorful characters yelling at each other, and meeting drags on for hours and hours, and everyone leaves in a bad mood. That's what I kind of envision. I know that's probably not what happens all the time, and I'm sure there are some communities that have a very clear vision of what they want. Um, you know, I disagree with you on the fact that USF is a tax. I mean, I I argue it, it's a subsidy that goes for a specific and beneficial purpose. Um, the high-cost fund, in general, goes to make sure that the sources of this country's food and natural resources stay connected to the rest of the world. So even if maybe somebody who lives in, you know, X community in California is paying into the Universal Service Fund and they don't see that benefit coming back directly to their community, the benefit might be going to, you know, somebody who lives in Montana and, you know, is building, you know, some really cool new farming technology. I mean, I, I somebody told me today that there's now, you know, tractors and combines and farm equipment that have these wireless sensors that can communicate to, back to, like, if it's John Deere, can communicate status of the machinery to the equipment manufacturer. So if there's a, you know, an oil leak or something wrong with it, that will just automatically be sent to the manufacturer, and then the farmer will not have to worry about going out into the field and, you know, his tractor exploding or something. So the benefits may not be a one-to-one in terms of community member pays in and the community member gets back exactly, but it goes to, you know, the, the more large national economy, and it goes to very beneficial areas. So. Well, I don't, necessarily, I don't disagree with where the money goes, and I understand that someone in New York may not, you know, see the... Yeah, the people in urban areas, the people in urban areas are very sore about this. Um, you know, there was a Wall Street Journal article when the right before the reform order was out that I thought was slightly misinformed, but there was a lot of very rude comments of, if you live in a rural area, you should move. Um, you know, no one's forcing you to live there, that kind of thing, which is just pure ignorance. Right, and I, and I find I find those arguments to be counterproductive to the issue at hand, mm-hmm. more the issue being... <clears throat> I would feel better seeing the money that I pay into the fund go to a, a an entity, like I said, whether it was at a regional level or a state level or whatever, where I knew that the people that are being affected by the technology were the ones making decisions about the technology. In other words, it's how the money gets spent. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you know it only comes back to the people who pay into it, you know, it's it's that whole thing of, you know, better they get the money than AT&T and Verizon because I feel like giving AT&T that money only results in, you know, more of the same. There will still be people unsatisfied and, and you know, and, and on and on. And uh, and I will also come back to the point about, you know, whether it's a tax or not, maybe talking semantics. Mm-hmm. However, if I look at my bill and there's this little chunk of change that's removed Maybe it's not a federal tax, and the mechanism for retrieving it is not the IRS or my state tax board, but it is still a, a mount, an amount dictated by a government entity that gets held up in a certain amount of time and then passed over from a telco to the government, 
and it ends up being this this fund. So I do see it as taxation. But we can discuss that over a beer. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's a debate that is not likely to get settled in the next 15 minutes. Not likely, not likely. One issue, though, I do want to talk about in the next 15 minutes, among others, is mapping data, right? So mm-hmm. if the maps <laughs> – I've had a long-running battle about the maps and the validity oh, of too, our maps and, and the fact that the data is only represented by some segment of the, the private sector with no external validation. But at the core of it all, if the maps the FCC uses to determine where there's coverage, um, if those are deemed incorrect, either by the population or you know the, the population which the map covers, um, doesn't that make any award – any money passed out suspect in terms of, you know, is that money going to where it's really needed? Because if the maps are off, everything else, all the rest of your assumptions are all out the window. Yes, absolutely. Um, That's a huge problem. Um, Interestingly, and I think this is important, it was kind of maybe a small detail that hasn't been getting a lot of press, but the mobility fund um, is going to be based on American Romer data, not the national broadband map. Now, I don't know a whole lot about American Romer data. I can't speak to whether or not it's better or worse. Um, it could just be you know, substituting one bad thing for another, for all I know. But the FCC specifically said that the mobile data for the national broadband map was questionable, which I thought was huge. I mean, like I said, it was a small detail, but I was like circling that and highlighting that and putting – Exclamation mark! Because that that just means they're absolutely just just by saying that they're nullifying the, you know some of the data and the wireless data on the back was the worst. I mean, I just laughed when I saw you know the area in Iowa that I'm from says Verizon has six three to six megabits per second wireless broadband. I mean, I can't even get a signal at the you know the farm where I came come from. I have to walk around the yard for. 10 minutes searching for a signal. I mean, who wants to do that when it's 30 below zero? Not me. You know, so, I mean, if you're going on, like, you know, that, yeah, there's going to be some real problems when it comes to, like, you know, if the funding decisions are going to be based on that. So I was really pleased with the fact that the FCC acknowledged that issue. Um, You know, with the other map, it's like there's so many problems with it. They say they're improving. I, I give them the benefit of the doubt on that. I haven't really seen a vast improvement. I think the map is just horrendous in terms of usability, but, I mean, that's my opinion. Um, You know, there was a very interesting paper published a month or so ago by uh, Tony Grubesek from Drexel University that I encourage everyone to read, um, which takes a look at some of the specific problems in the map. And one that I found kind of troubling and funny, even in a way, was that there's all these completely empty census blocks that are just devoid of population and maybe are a lake or like an interstate on-ramp, and they are presented on the map as being served. Um, and then in addition to that, there's all these areas, and this is you know in price cap territory, that are listed as served, but he went out and did studies that show that they're not. But the reason that they're listed as served is because Verizon or Time Warner or whoever could serve the people within seven to ten days. They could serve them. So, I mean, are you going to be basing funding on whether an area could be served? I certainly hope not. But then that comes to the heart of the whole, you know, issues with the broadband stimulus and any other program that is based on we're going to give some area money based on who has coverage and who doesn't. When the core of it all, the crux of the whole flipping thing is the map. And yeah. from the get-go, the maps have been in question, whether they were developed. Oh, yeah. Since the day they came out, they have been in question, without a doubt. 
do we have an answer? Do we have a solution? Do we have a way to fight back, to push back, to do something? Um, I mean, I would encourage, well, I wouldn't, there's a lot of companies that didn't participate in the map, and I would encourage them to participate in the map, A, and B, provide accurate information. Um, that's really all that can be done. Um, you know, if, if you're a consumer and you want to raise issues with this, look at the maps. You know, take, they're not fun to use. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare to try to use that map. You know, you put in your zip code and, like, you know, the, it doesn't list the towns. It lists airports. It, it's, abs, it's an absolute nightmare to use. But if you really care about this issue, I mean, go spend an afternoon looking at the maps, figure out what the areas that are wrong, and then submit it. You know, there's, submit it to the, the map maker, which is NTIA and um, what is it, uh, the Connect America people, so Connect Connected yeah. Nation. Nation. <laughs> yeah, Connected. I mean, I I know some people from there. They're very nice. They're working very hard. They are aware of these problems. You know, that it's it's just it they they have limited resources too. I mean, they don't. I I think it's ridiculous. This map costs two hundred million dollars, and it's like, come on, like I can make a pretty good map for two hundred million dollars probably. Um, no. But you know, they do. They have limited resources. They have to go out and do drive tests. They they have a they have a large responsibility you know in their defense they do have a large responsibility and it takes six months to update these things so that's a problem in itself because you know you're constantly running on data that's six months behind well we know things move quite fast in the broadband world yep yeah yep. so and that which brings us to the other <clears throat> half of this discussion on the mapping thing which is the minimum speeds that are established All right now i will be blunt i consider this a travesty of justice that we are creating this you know four meg one meg crap i mean i've just finished a broad mm -hmm. uh, study of, of economic development professionals across the u.s and pretty much you know 85 90 percent of them say you know that baseline has no economic value there is it, no way that true. you can run <clears throat> businesses that make a difference on that kind of uh, uh -huh. technology. So in respect, isn't the minimum really going to become the maximum because if I can check if I can co collect the check by providing this minimum amount of money or if I can keep competitors out by saying I provide this minimum amount of 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 uh connectivity speed, isn't isn't the minimum in essence becoming the maximum? I certainly hope not. Um, and here's the thing. The FCC is strongly hinting that this 4.1 is going to be increased to 6.1.5 in several years. Well, is that really an improvement over something that's already outdated? I don't know. Um, if you are in an area with no broadband, I think that any greenfield projects right now that are in the pipeline would be very wise to at least target to that 6.1.5. I think they should just skip over 4.1 if they can do it. I mean, if it's absolutely financially impossible for them to do that, there's or technically impossible if, if you're thinking about DSL and you're working with long distances here, I mean, then, yeah, there there may be some areas where, yeah, the minimum is going to become the maximum, and then in five, you know, ten years from now, we're going to be looking at another digital divide. I mean, that's that's been kind of something that a lot of people have been saying since this came out. I found it kind of interesting that, Throughout the proceeding, most of the rural parties were opposed to the 4-1 because it differentiated between urban areas, which the National Broadband Plan just absolutely insanely said at 100 megabits per second, but four for rural, which was an outrage for me personally. I did a whole project on it a year ago for school. But, um, you know, that I, I feel like that kind of has been a 
was not brought up in order the 100 megabits per second and the huge disparity between the two. But I have heard that some of the rural parties are now concerned because they're not even going to be able to meet the 4-1 um, with some of their very far outlying customers. Well, I suppose those are customers that there might be an opportunity for fixed wireless and you know other other companies to come in or satellite. I, I suppose I feel bad for those customers who have to get satellite, but you know if that's what the FCC wants and that's where the money is going to go, it's better than nothing. Uh, okay, I'll put that one on the shelf for a second. But if I mean that's really the argument for the WISP approach. I mean basically <clears throat> those are companies providing wireless services that often exceed these pitiful minimums. Mm-hmm. And you know they're by default able to get into some of these nooks and crannies a lot easier than I mean definitely easier than trying to run some sort of new wire line out there, and yet it seems like um they're they're not really included in the party, and on top of that, there's also this clause that allows people to claim oh extreme hardship, and I can't do this, but does that mean they still collect the check? Oh, absolutely not. Um, The waiver process is not going to be an easy. It is not going to be a free pass. Um, The Commissioner Copps came out, um, what was a couple weeks ago, at the NARUC meeting, and he said that he really doesn't think too highly of any companies who try to get the waivers. Well, he's gone in a couple of months, so maybe his opinion doesn't matter as much right now. But the waiver process is not going to be easy. Waivers will only be granted if the carrier can show that voice service is at risk of going away there are no other alternatives whatsoever, like even 2G wireless. Satellite doesn't count. But, you know, if there's this, this is voice service. So if, if the customer literally is going to lose their tel- basic telephone line, and that takes a lot for that to go away. In addition to that, if the company applies for a waiver, they're going to be subject to a total company earnings review, which is, you know, if, if say, the company happens to own a stake in a successful car wash, you know, that's going to be included in their revenue, which is going to be seen as a way that they could pay for this broadband service. And then in addition to that, they're going to have to comply with all the public interest obligations. And if they miss, if they abuse the process in any way, and this even goes to the price cap carriers receiving phase one CAF, there's going to be sanctions, they may have to return the funds, and they may even be banished from future funding. So I got the impression that the FCC is dead serious on not having any loopholes at all. Well, I will have Commissioner Cops on the show next week, so I'll definitely make sure I can uh, bring up. Yeah, I mean, he, I, he, I mean, I, I wrote something about his little speech at the Nehru meeting, and I thought, you know, he really kind of made a very strong point about both waivers and lawsuits, which is that there's this is not time for that. I mean, I, I don't know if, like I said, I, I think that there may be some opportunities for lawsuits that might have good results, but with the waivers, I really would not recommend that any. Rural company rely on waivers. I just I think it would be a terrible idea. Um, I think it right. you know I think there there sure there might be extreme situations where the customers are literally in danger of losing their voice service if the USF goes away. But I think if you start the waiver process, you're just going to open yourself up to to a lot of hassle and audits and government intrusion. Mm-hmm. So no, I, there, there was a thought sitting around my brain as we kind of went off on the on the waiver um, issue, which is um, this whole issue that we're not going to provide subsidy to a place that provide that proves that they have coverage, which again, I mean, is really just an extension of the map discussion because, uh, again, if you've got someone saying I could bring service in ten days, um, is there any challenge option? I mean, I, I know this is wishful thinking, but 
mm-hmm. you know, for someone to say, okay, well, we've got a company here that's willing to provide this service. Now, you're saying that this area is covered, and we've got 100 people or we've got 1,000 people that will show you that we're not being covered. Yes, I think there. I think there is. I I can almost in my mind picture reading something about there. You know, with the stimulus funding, I know there was this you know long arduous challenge process. I don't. I think that with the reverse auctions, there will be some kind of challenge process. Um, I don't know the specifics. I couldn't tell you what page it was on in the order, but I do remember seeing something about that. Okay. If you want to cross that again, send me an email with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll go. I'll go back and look at that. Because yeah, I think I think that there will be something like that. I mean, if it's if it's an open public process of any kind, then you know usually there's some kind of opportunity, at least a comment cycle or something, where you can spend your days saying such and such company shouldn't get money. You know, mm-hmm. I suppose you could do that. So. So we got about two two three minutes here. Let me just hit on one last thing: the reverse auction. How is that sucker going to work? And my impression of the reverse auction is that if you've got a whole pile of money, you can basically low bid the, the heck out of a oh, yeah. bid option and just take it all and then you're done. I mean, I am firmly of the belief that reverse auctions are going to be a nightmare. Um, I think there's just ample opportunities for gaming the system and relying on your economies of scale and you know lowball bidding. And then you know, if you look at some examples from India and Chile and um, Australia, I believe, there are some really scary examples of reverse auction abuse. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I can't really, you know, it, it probably, I could probably talk about that for another hour. But yeah, I mean, I, this is, they've never been used before in the United States. This is completely new. I mean, I, I trust that the FCC knows its auction methodology. I'm not, you know, they say over and over, we're the experts in auctions. We do auctions so well, blah, blah, blah. Fine, yeah, you, you do them okay, but this is completely new. They're, the thing is that, um, you know, they're going to use kind of these phase one mobility and phase one cap um, support things as, you know, a test bed for the reverse auctions. And I think maybe they're saying, well, we're going to put out this sort of limited amount of money. Maybe if things go wrong, eh, well, at least we learned something. So I guess, you know, I don't I don't know what you can say about that, whether it's good or bad, but I've been bracing myself for some really bad things to come from reverse auctions. Well, <clears throat> isn't that a cheerful note? Um, <laughs> I'm not a big fan, so I won't even pretend. Like yeah, I, I mean, you I know, like, it, it, I I've been trying to say at the very least, let's hope that the price cap carriers just don't even bother in some of the areas, and then that gives an opportunity, a possibly very good opportunity for the small companies. I, I'm just hoping that that happens at least once. It would be great if it happened at least once so I can write about it and say good job. <laughs> yeah, very, very much the case. I'm not a big fan of just traditional auctions either because I think it, you know, it's just a refer- reverse end of the same issue, which is if I got a pile of money, I can dominate on a regular auction. I mean, you know, right. once it, it, yeah. it's, it's all kind of screwed up. Yeah. Definitely. So, any last thirty-second comment on? Um, well, you know, thank you so much for having me come on and talk about this. I really hope that I provided some clarity to some people. I know this is a very complex issue. I listened to a three-hour conference call on it yesterday, and I still was left with some very burning questions. And, you know, the words horrendous year and horrible were thrown around a few times, and it it definitely gets me a little nervous. But, you know, 
in a way, I'm excited for the road ahead because there's going to be a lot of interesting things that happen. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it, and I want to thank our audience for listening in. Oh, thank and, you. Um, yes, it's been it's been very interesting. We will probably come back to this discussion again in the future. So great. Yeah. Love to have you back. Oh, thank you so much. All right, folks. Have a good day. And tomorrow, I've got Alcatel on for a discussion on consumer research projects that they just finished that have some really interesting data. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.